This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Grace to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is good to see you this morning. Those of you who are in person and those of you online, thanks so much for being with us online. If you have a Bible with you, which I hope you do, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'd love to give you a present of a Bible today. And so we actually have some on right on the door there as you came in. Um, want to make sure everyone has God's Word in front of them today. We are in Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. And uh, we're going to be studying specifically verses 27 through 40. So you can look, go to Luke, look for the big number 20, and then we'll be in verses 27 through 40. As you make your way there, some of you know that in my previous life, I used to be in corporate sales. And part of my responsibilities was whining and dining prospective clients. Now, I grew up with a very modest family. A big night out in the crowd for uh, in the town for us was going to McDonald's and being allowed to order two things off the dollar menu. So taking people to fancy restaurants was not something that I had really much of any experience with whatsoever. And so I found myself in a very odd situation one time where I was taking a group of clients up to New York. We were going to the U.S. Open together. And before going to the U.S. Open, we went out to the Capitol Grill for dinner right there off of Broadway. And we walk in, and my administrator had already pre-ordered the meal because she knows I have no idea how to do that. So she's already pre-ordered the meal. And so we walk into just this beautiful buffet of food. I mean, a full table full of incredible things to eat. We're talking legs of lamb. We're talking lobster tail. Uh, we're talking crab cocktail. So, like, you don't even have to go through the ta- crab. They've already pulled it out for you. You just get to enjoy eating it. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to town. I mean, my plate is filled high. And uh, I did put a little broccoli in there so I could tell my wife they ate my greens. And, and I'm just enjoying this huge feast of a meal. But I didn't realize that I was making a really rookie mistake. Because I thought that the whole meal had been spread out. What I didn't realize was these were just the appetizers. And so what happens is about 45 minutes into this incredible experience, the food gets taken away, and then out comes the main course. Then comes the New York strip and the ribeyes with demi glaze sauce and, um, you know, just incredible flame yawns. I mean, it's just, it was unbelievable, and yet I was full. I had eaten all and stuffed myself with the appetizers, not realizing that something better was coming. When you know something better is coming, that changes how you, real, how you interact with what's happening in that moment, doesn't it? I think about the first time I took one of my kids to the movies, and they're sitting there, and I was telling them what it's going to be like to watch a movie in the movie theater. They're all excited. And then the previews come on, and they watch the first preview, and they kind of look at me like, is that it? That's, that's kind of short, Dad. You know, it's like, no, no, don't worry, don't worry. Something better, something better is coming. Or imagine that you go on a vacation, and you're telling your family, this is going to be an amazing vacation. We're going to have this beautiful, awesome time. And they're going on an airplane for the first time. And they're excited to be on the airplane. But then the takeoff happens. And one of your kid hurls. <laughs> and they look at you, kind of betrayed look in their eyes. Like, I thought you said this was going to be great. You're like, no, no, no. I promise. I promise something better is 
coming. What we're going to see in our passage today is Jesus telling us that no matter what we're going through in life, whether it's a good time or a challenging time, Jesus is going to tell us that something better is coming. That's what we title this morning's sermon. That's also the main point, so it made it really easy for you if you're taking notes. Something better is coming. And we don't usually do this as a church, but I'm going to ask for a little interaction here. So why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell your neighbor right now, something better is coming. And if you're online, I can't see you, but God's watching you, and so you need to say that out loud. <laughs> something better Something better is coming. Let's turn our attention to God's Word, starting in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there's a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and third took her, and likewise all seven left, no children, and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given a marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are they given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. May God be with us as his word was just read and now as it is preached for our edification. We know at the end here of chapter 20, Jesus has been being approached by various groups who are asking him different kinds of questions. This is the final set of questions that he's going to be asked. It's coming from this group of people, this Judas, uh, sect of Jews known as the Sadducees. And there are three parts to this interaction that we're going to look at this morning. Three parts that are going to kind of walk us through the message that God has for us in this part of Scripture. The first part is this. We're going to look at the question about the resurrection. The question about the resurrection. This is the first time in the book of Luke that we've met these people the Sadducees. We've seen a lot of another sect of Jews known as the Pharisees. We've seen them all over. They were a lot more numerous than the Sadducees. The Pharisees got their name from the word separatists. That's the word Pharisee means. And they were a very, very strict sect of Jews. They saw themselves as needing to be separate from the world, needing to be holy, needing to be set apart for God. And so they had very, very strict rules about what their lives should look like. But the Sadducees were not we're not very strict at all. They're actually on the opposite end of the spectrum. The Sadducees didn't see themselves as separatists. The Sadducees saw themselves as compromisers. They were deal makers. They were known for being very pragmatic. And we're told why in verse 27 when we're told that they didn't believe in 
the resurrection. So they didn't believe there was a heaven. They didn't believe there was a hell. They didn't believe there was an afterlife. They believed there was only this life. And so since they thought this life was all that there is, they did whatever they needed to do to make life as comfortable for themselves as they could. And so the Roman government, which occupied Jerusalem at this time, they, they loved these guys because they were willing to work with them. And they were willing to be pragmatic and just make things happen. And so the Roman government put most of the Jewish people that it, who were Sadducees, they allowed them to be in the places of power. This is why Josephus, the great Jewish historian of the first century, he tells us that these Sadducees, here's who they represented. They represented the nobility, power, and wealth. That's who these guys are. Ananias, the high priest, the highest ranking Jewish official of that day, was a Sadducee. The Sadducees comprised most of the Sanhedrin, which was the, the rulers in Jerusalem. Now what's interesting is that the Jewish scriptures on the whole clearly taught that there was life after death. That's why the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection, as did most ancient Jews. So for example, the prophetic book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Or, or the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Or Job, in Job chapter 19, verse 25 and 26, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. See, all these passages were in the Jewish Scriptures, but what the Sadducees did is they pulled what I would like to call a Thomas Jefferson. Here's what I mean by that. You might be aware in history that the Thomas Jefferson, he didn't like some things in the Bible. He, liked, he did like some things, but he didn't like everything. And so what he did is he literally took his Bible and cut out the parts of it that didn't agree with his rationality. And so he didn't just write his own Declaration of Independence. He, he wrote for our country. He wrote his own Bible at the same time by copying and pasting it together. That's exactly what the Sadducees did. They just cut out the parts of the Bible they didn't agree with. So they threw out the prophets. They threw out the Psalms. They threw out the books of history. They threw out the books of wisdom. They said only the Torah which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, only the Torah is actually God's real world word. And that's how they justified rejecting the resurrection. It's not in the Torah, and so because it's not there, it's not really from God. And I just think how easy can that be for us as well? Then when there's something that we think, when we have our preconceived ideas, and those come up against God's word, what gives is God's Word. How easy it is for us to cut out parts of Scripture that don't conform to the desires we have for ourselves and our own way of thinking. It's very easy for us to be like these Sadducees, isn't it? But these Sadducees, they, they, they roll up on Jesus, and then they try to use a tactic on Him known in logic terms as reductio ad absurdum. Reducing to absurdity. It's when you take your opponent's belief and you draw out the implications of that belief to show that because these implications are absurd, therefore the original belief is itself absurd. If you're a parent, you probably have used this kind of logic before on your children. Let me imagine a scenario. 
our kid comes home from school and, and got in trouble, and you ask them, why did you do such and such? And they say what? Well, so-and-so told me to do it. Then what's our response as parents? We usually say in that moment, well, if so-and-so told you to jump off a bridge, would you do it? You know? And what's beautiful about that is our kids then see our divine logic, and they just fall to their knees in repentance and say, yes, I see what you're saying. I was totally in the wrong. Um, for those of you who aren't parents, that is absolute sarcasm. I don't think a child's ever done that once in their life. But it's the same thing. You're, you're taking what was said, and you're trying to show that, that the implications of this are absurd. Therefore, the original belief is itself absurd. And so the Sadducees, they use this tactic by going to the book of Deuteronomy, one of the books that they did affirm as being part of God's word, specifically a, a law that's given in it in chapter 25, verse 5. It's the, the, Le, the Leverite law. The Leverite law comes from the Hebrew word lever, which means for brother. brother. In those days, property could only pass either from father to son or from brother to brother. And so if a man died without having a son, his wife would lose everything because she couldn't own property. She'd be in an incredibly vulnerable state. So in an act of compassion by God, he didn't want to leave women vulnerable to being exploited and taken advantage of and taking that which should be theirs away from them. No, God cares about everyone. And so God wants to make sure that he put protections into his people's laws about how to deal with this. And so what he did in tremendous compassion is he said that if a wife, if her, if her husband dies, leaving her no child, no son to care for her, then that man's brother should marry her. And then they could have a child together, a son, and that son would be able to care for his mother. And not only that, but that son would carry on the name of her original husband who had died. And again, that's really weird for us to think about, you know, in this day and age. But like, in that day, it was a tremendous act of compassion. And so the Sadducees, they cite this example, this is what happens, and then they throw out this kind of hypothetical situation to Jesus. Imagine a woman, she marries this guy, and he has seven brothers. And he dies, and you know, they have no son together. Then she marries the next brother. They die. He has no son together. Then she marries the next brother. He dies. They have no son together. Then she, and it just keeps going on and on and on. Now, if I was Jesus, I'm saying time out for a second. Like, what brother is going to keep marrying this woman? Like, apparently that's a death wish waiting to happen. But anyways, the, 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 the hypothetical situation goes on. And they're saying, in the resurrection, in the next life, Who's she going married to? Because here on earth, she was married to all these different guys at one time. And so in the resurrected life, where they're all supposed to be resurrected, which one of them is she actually going to be married to? Right, their point is, do you see how silly that is, Jesus? Like, this is supposed to be a mic drop, walk away, we just prove there is no resurrection. They didn't realize they were talking to the Son of God. <laughs> because Jesus doesn't skip a beat. He doesn't just sit back and let them deconstruct this vital tenet of the faith, and rewrite what it means to believe in Scripture. No, he answers this, I think in many ways, liberal theology. He, he answers it very, very clearly by directing them to four realities about the resurrection. So let's look at the second part of this interaction. Part number two, the realities of the resurrection. The realities of the resurrection. The first thing he points out is the resurrected life is not like this life. That's what he says in verses 34 and 35. He says, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, 
For those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. See, he's pointing out a tremendous mistake that the Sadducees were making. You see, they were assuming that when Jesus taught about the resurrection, that meant that Jesus thought the next life would be just like this life. And so if you're married on earth, you know, oh, you must be married in the resurrection as well because the next life is just like this life. Jesus' point is, not at all. There is this age, and there is that age. And they are two completely different things. Friends, what good news this is for us. Because I tell you what, this age, aren't we grateful that there's another age that's going to be different from what's happening in this age? We live in a broken world. The hope of the resurrection is that the next life will not be like this life with all of its sadness, pain, and regret. No, it is going to be full of beauty and thriving and harmony unbroken forever. Makes me think of a scene from the last book in the Chronicle of Narnia series written by C.S. Lewis called The, uh, the Last Battle. As they're about to enter into Aslan's land, um, it's allegory for heaven. This is what they, this is what they say. Speaking about Aslan's land. They say, of course, it is different. As different as a real thing is from a shadow. Or as lake, waking life is from a dream. And so I cried, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they're beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Friends, our life on earth is not like the life that is to come. Something better is coming. There is this age and there is that age. And as we look to that age, we are to realize, oh, something, something better is coming. Second, not only is the resurrected life um, something that is not like this life, it is also unending. It's also unending. Jesus says this very clearly in verse 36. They cannot die anymore because they're equal to the angels. Now, let's be clear here real quick. It's a common mistake that can be made. Jesus is not saying that we become angels in heaven. It's not what he says. You know, um, it says we don't be, he doesn't say we become angels. He says we become equal to angels. You know, it's inevitable you go to a funeral. And at some point, someone's going to say, you know, God just, he needed another angel in heaven. And it's like, no, not at all. Like, first of all, God doesn't need anything. It's not like he's like lonely up in heaven just waiting for other people to join him. No, God doesn't need anything. And second of all, we're not going to become angels. No, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is very clear that we're going to have glorified bodies. These are human bodies, male and female bodies. We are still the same as now as we will be then, just glorified with everything that's a junk here removed. 
right? And so we're not becoming angels in heaven. Now, when someone says that at a funeral, please do not correct their theology. That's like not the place to get into a doctrinal debate. Like, just cry with them, put your arm around them, and like, you know, be with them in their pain. But what, what is Jesus talking to here is he says that we become equal to angels. Well, he tells us what he means by this. We're equal in that we cannot, like them, we cannot die anymore. We're, we're equal to them in that we are both immortal when we get into the next life. What does immortality have to do with not being given in marriage? Why is Jesus saying that, hey, when you're immortal, you're not going to be, need to be married anymore? What, what's the connection there? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, God tells us the part of why he, he created marriage is for procreation. To fill the world with more people made in his image. And right now, there's a need to keep this world populated because people keep passing away from it. But the resurrected life is unending. No one passes from it, and so there is no need in the resurrection for procreation. And so here on earth, we need these things, but not when we get to heaven. If you think about it, here on earth, every good time we have is always tinged with a sadness that it's going to end, isn't it? You go on a great vacation, and then the vacation's over. You get the vacation blues. Grief is often the price we have to pay for our joy. Because as much as you might enjoy something, everything we enjoy in this life will, at some point, come to an end. And when it does, that joy is replaced with grief. And the greater the joy, the more we grieve when that joy comes to an end. The more you love someone, the more you grieve their passing, don't you? Friends, there is something better coming. The resurrected life never ends. There are no goodbyes in the next life. There are no funeral arrangements that need to be made. There is no sorrow of things being over. No, there's only compounding joy as we experience more and more of God's blessings going on to us in our immortality, meaning going on to us forever in unending ways. Friends, something better is coming. Third reality of the resurrection. Resurrected life is love. It is love. It's what he says at the end of verse 36. He says that we are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Now as we've seen before in our study of the Gospel of Luke, being the son of something is not necessarily a reference to your gender, but is a more broadly used term that speaks to being the heir, being the recipient of an inheritance. That's what it means to be the son of something. And so this is another reason why there's no marriage in heaven. Because marriage in this life is meant to point to. It's meant to be illustrative of an inheritance that we're going to get in the next life when we enter into being sons of the resurrection. In Ephesians chapter 5, this point is made so clearly when we're told, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh this mystery is profound and i'm saying that it refers to christ 
and the church. See, in marriage, you have two people coming together. Two people who are completely different from one another. Different in gender. You have male and female, but they're designed by God. Within those gender differences, they're designed by God to be able to come together as one. And that picture of marriage, of two different people coming together in unity as one, that picture of marriage is meant to be an illustration of the union we have with Christ. As we are different from Him, not like Him, and yet through faith able to be able to come together as one with Him. This union is true for us now by faith, but friends, what Jesus is telling us here is that when we become sons of the resurrection, when we enter into this inheritance, it will be even more fully true in the life that is to come. Because now we enjoy this by faith. Friends, when we're with Christ, guess what? We're going to be with Christ. It will not be faith. It will be sight. This is why the last book of the Bible, Revelations, promises us in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, gives us glorious picture. It says, let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Friends, that's us. The marriage that we experience on earth or that we maybe don't experience ourselves but see other people enjoying, marriage on earth is meant to be a picture of the greater marriage of the Lamb that we have in heaven. The Lamb is Jesus who as He was crucified as the sacrificial Lamb for us taking on our sins upon the cross, He gave His life for ours so that we could enter into union with Him forever. There's no need for marriage in heaven, friends. Because we won't need a picture anymore. We'll be experiencing the real thing. We're experiencing fully our union with Christ that He purchased on the cross. You know, I love pictures of my wife. I enjoy looking at them. But when I'm with her, I don't sit there and look at pictures of her. No, like, I enjoy being with her. Like, she's better than the picture. There's no need to have a picture because she's right there. And so friends, this is why we should. We should honor and appreciate marriages. They are a picture of something that is holy. But we shouldn't idolize marriage as if it's the ultimate experience, that the one thing that we should want to attain, that we should want to have. No, 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 friends. Our marriages are not the end-all, be-all. They are pointing to something else, pointing to something that is greater than themselves. Our marriages are a picture that something better is coming. Something better that we're promised in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. Friends, there is truer fellowship. There is more meaningful companionship. There is deeper love than we could possibly imagine here on earth. There is deeper love waiting for us when we come into our inheritance as sons of the resurrection. There's something better coming. And here's the good news. Fourth reality of the resurrection. The resurrected life is open to anyone. Is open to anyone. Notice what Jesus says in verse 35. He says, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead. 
Notice what he's saying here. The only people who are getting into the resurrection, experiencing the inheritance of union with Christ forever, the only people are going to be those who are considered worthy. Notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say the only people getting in are those who are worthy. As if our worth comes from some intrinsic value of ourselves. He doesn't say that you get in because you are worthy. What terrible news that would be. We'd have to spend our whole lives trying to do enough to be worthy to get into heaven. What a burden that would be to live with. That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say those who are worthy. He says those who are considered worthy. I've got to put my linguistics hat on here for a second. The point that he's making here is that the one being considered is in the passive voice. Meaning they're not doing anything to this consideration process. They're not doing anything to contribute to being made worthy. That's why some translations will actually say the more literal way to, to say this is to say to be made worthy. You're not, you, it's not, Jesus is not saying that you are something. He's saying that you are made something, that something happens to you. Pastor and theologian Phil Riken draws out this point by saying this. Worthiness is not something we do, but something done to us. It's not something that comes from inside of us, but something that God declares about us and gives to us by grace. And friends, we know from the rest of the New Testament that how God does this, how He considers us to be worthy, is on the basis of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. See, we are not worthy, but Jesus is. And so we put our faith in Jesus. The worthiness of Jesus covers us when we are united to Him. It's not our worthiness that God sees. God sees us clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus, and it's His worthiness that God sees. This is what we're told in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 9. It's not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And friends, this is why anyone, anyone can be counted worthy for resurrected life with God forever. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the shame you carry. It doesn't matter the guilt upon your heart. It doesn't matter your regrets. It doesn't matter your experience of brokenness. Anyone can be counted worthy because our worth does not come from us. It comes from being covered by Christ. And so, friend, you need to hear today that if you are sitting here and you feel like your sin is distant to you from God, if you feel like you are too far gone to be made right with God, if you are sitting in condemnation and feeling condemned over ways that you have failed God, friends, you need to hear on the authority of God's Word that regardless of how you feel about yourself, if you have placed your faith in Christ, you are now covered by Jesus. And as God looks at you, covered by His Son's perfect righteousness, God looks at you, and regardless of how you feel, God says, worthy, worthy. That is how you are considered right now by faith in Christ. You are considered as worthy. And God is not taking a vote and asking for your feelings to be counted into that consideration. No, He declares you in Christ worthy. What good news this is for us. We are counted 
worthy in Christ. And because of that, because we're covered in Him, we are now welcome to enjoy resurrected life with God forever. There's something better coming. But how do we know this is true? Often when you hear news this good, it can feel like this is news that's too good. There must be some catch. Like, how, how do we know this is actually true? This past week, I was watching an interview with Sam Harris, who's a pretty noted atheist, and he was talking about faith, and he was saying that faith is belief despite your rationality. Faith is just blindly believing things. But Jesus doesn't define faith like that at all. He never tells us just to blindly believe in things. No, but we're going to look at part four, uh, three here. We're going to look at part three, where Jesus gives proof for the resurrection. Jesus gives proof for the resurrection. Faith is not blindly believing things. Faith is believing the evidence that God has provided. Faith is believing the revelation that God has given. Faith is responding to something. It's not putting our minds aside. It's actually thinking more deeply. That's what faith is. And that's why we probably shouldn't take our definitions of faith from an atheist. Probably go to God's Word and what God has to say about it. So let's look at part number three, the proof that Jesus gives for the resurrection. Proof for the resurrection. There's so much that Jesus could have said to prove this. So many different places he could have gone. He could have simply pointed to himself, right? It's what we celebrate at Easter. Jesus said in other parts of Scripture, I am the resurrection. Like, he's going to die, and he's going to come back to life to show that there is life after death. Like, he himself is walking proof of the resurrection. But that's not where he goes with these guys. It's very interesting. That's, that's not where he goes. Look what he says in verse 37. He says, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. He, he takes them back to the book of Exodus, which is one of the books that these guys would have affirmed is actually being God's word. He takes them to a chapter that's recounted in, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, the time when Moses says, God, who are you? And God identifies himself. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Those are the three patriarchs of the Israelite nation. See what Jesus is doing here. He's going back to something that they already believed in. And he's going to show them how what they already believed is only justified if they actually believe in what he's saying. What a lesson this is on how to reach people. Don't just say you're wrong about something, but, but find common ground and show how that common ground that you agree upon actually presupposes that you agree and actually believe in Christ. Right? It's something that we've talked about a lot with the issue of justice, for example. It makes no sense to care about social justice. It makes no sense to care about other people being treated with equity and fairness if you don't believe that people are made in the image of God. Because if we're just evolutionary beings, then actually what evolutionary t evolution tells me is natural selection, um, you know, survival of the fittest, I should want to compete against you, not cooperate with you. Right? But, but people in our, in our society, it's actually a good thing. They have a desire for social justice. And so it's actually an awesome opportunity to share with them the truth about God. Say, so you don't believe that because of evolution. You believe that because of revelation. You believe that because God has made all of us equal image bearers of him. And that's why you have this desire to cooperate and care instead of compete. Right? We take things that people already believe in and show how that belief is only justified by actually what God has revealed in Scripture. I could talk about that for a while, but just moving on. Notice what Jesus is saying here. He's drawing their attention to how it says God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Jesus is drawing their attention there to the verb tense, which is even more obvious in the original Greek. His point is that he's saying that if they were dead, then God would not say he's the God of, 
he would say he's the God who was. Was, the past tense. I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. But that's not what he says. He says, I am the God of. I am. It, it's, it's, it's the present tense. It's ongoing. It's a, it's a continuing reality. And so the only way for God to be the God of them is for them to still be presently, ongoing, alive, resurrected. That's what Jesus says. He's the God of the living, not the God, God of the dead. The, the dead have ceased to be. But they haven't ceased to be. They're still living. And so he's not the God of the living. He's the God of the resurrection. All live. This life is not the only life. There is another life to come. He takes them to Scripture, Scriptures that they already believed in, to show that even though they thought the resurrection wasn't talked about in the Torah, their problem was they weren't actually reading the Torah very well. They, they thought they knew the Scriptures. They thought, hey, been there, read that, got that. And Jesus is saying, let me give you the author's interpretation. And let me show you how this passage that you've been reading your whole life, you haven't even begun to understand the depths of it. Friends, when we are confronted with questions from others, when you can have your own questions about your faith, you don't need clever arguments. We don't need complex philosophies. What we need is God's Word, because God's Word is life. What Jesus did here is the same thing we see Jesus do in the desert when He's being confronted by Satan. He goes and He quotes Scripture. Of all that Jesus could have done to prove the resurrection, He went to Scripture to show what God has taught. Because this isn't just a book of information. It's a book that as we read it openly, Honestly, searchingly, friends, God meets us here. He meets us here. This is why the famous preacher, Charles Spurgeon, when he was once asked, how does he defend against objections to the Bible? He said very easily, I defend the Bible the same way someone defends a lion. I simply let it out of its cage. Friends, when we have our own questions and doubts, struggles and pains, we need to let the lion out of its cage. We need to go to God's Word and let God's Word have its intended effect upon our hearts. A common mistake that I see people make when they're, they're struggling with their faith is they close this book and they think because they have questions about this book, okay, I need to go think about this for myself. Friends, that's the last thing you should do. No, when you... You shouldn't engage less with Scripture thinking that you understand it already. No, no, no. If you're having questions and doubts, that's showing you that there is more Scripture you need. It's showing you that there's a need and a gap between your knowledge and how God wants to meet you. And so don't close this book. No, open this book and study it even more. We don't say, okay, oh, I know what this says. I've got that already. No, friends, you don't. The Sadducees did it. Jesus needs to take them back to the Scriptures that they thought they had read a million times before. He needs to take them back and show them how there was a greater depth than they could possibly imagine. And friends, if you've had questions about your faith, God wants to do the same thing with you. We answer our questions about the Bible by going to the Bible and allowing God to meet us here. And as He meets us here, He tells us many wonderful things. And one of them is that something better is coming. Something better is coming that's not going to be like this life. Friend, you need to hear today that your pain 
has an expiration date. It doesn't change how you might feel about what you're going through, but that should give you strength to endure because God has promised you that one day it will be over. The age to come does not carry with it the burdens of this age. It's not like this life. There's an expiration to every heartache that you currently feel. Not only is there an expiration to your pain, but there's unending joy to be looked forward to. And all our joys here are simply just an appetizer that God doesn't want us to kind of stuff ourselves with. No, they're an appetizer. They're meant to whet our appetite for something greater that's coming. The compounding joy of God's blessings that never come to an end in heaven forever. As we think about the resurrected life, we're reminded that love is coming. And we should find comfort in that. In the midst of our heartaches and betrayals and ways that people can let us down in this life, friend, be comforted that there is true, deep, meaningful love of God that will be yours forever in the age to come. And you can enjoy and experience all that. You can walk away from this today being assured of that, not because you are worthy, but because in Christ, God has counted you as worthy. And so friends, what, really what Jesus is promising us is here is He says that something better is coming. He's telling us that in your pain, there's redemption coming in the resurrection that He brings. He is telling you that in your suffering, there is healing coming in the resurrection that He brings. He is telling you in your heartache, there is love coming in the resurrection that He brings. He is telling you in your struggle against sin, there is deliverance coming in the resurrection that He brings. He is telling you in your loss, there is restoration coming in the resurrection that He brings. And so yes, we can hope and pray and believe that God can give us a taste of those things now. Oh yes, God, pour them out upon us, we pray. But we have His assurance based upon the truth of His Word, and vindicated by His own resurrected life, we have the assurance of Jesus that as we are united to Him by faith, we will also be resurrected like He is, and we have eternal life to enjoy with Him forever. Our union with Christ, the marriage of the Lamb, the resurrection, friends, is real and true. And so because of Jesus, we can say with full assurance... Something better is coming. Something better is coming. Let's pray.